you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. In the church Bible, that's page 1205, and in the large print Bibles, 1867. And we'll read the whole of chapter 7. Chapter 6 ended by telling us Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That needs a good bit of explanation, I'm sure. And chapter 7 gives us that. So chapter 7, verse 1 says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites. Even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is written, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, 
Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Each week as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, we've noticed this book is a sermon on the Old Testament. It's written as a word of encouragement to Christians. And it's constantly pointing to Jesus. It does that by beginning with something back in the Old Testament and then leading us from there to Jesus. Last week, the Old Testament focus was Abraham and God's great promise to Abraham. And then we saw how God is fulfilling that promise through Jesus. Now chapter 7 changes to focus on the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek. There are only two references to Melchizedek in the whole of the Old Testament. The first of those is dealt with here in verses 1 to 10. And the second Old Testament reference is dealt with in verses 11 through 28. So this chapter gives us all we will ever need to know about Melchizedek. He first appears in the book of Genesis. And if you blink, you'll miss him. He gets just three verses in Genesis. He has just a tiny part in the big story of Abraham. At one point, Abraham's nephew Lot gets caught up in a war between several tribal kings. Lot is taken captive. And when he hears about it, Abraham goes off in pursuit of his nephew. Abraham was a wealthy man. He had a big farming operation. And when there was any fighting that needed to be done, Abraham's workers doubled up as a private army. So when he hears about Lot, Abraham dishes out the Kalashnikovs, and he and his men chase after these guys who have kidnapped Lot. They're successful in getting Lot back. And as Abraham returns from that battle, we read this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Melchizedek pops into the story for a brief moment, and then he disappears from the story. 
We hear nothing more about him until he's mentioned in one line of a psalm about a thousand years later. Hebrews 7 will deal with the psalm later. But in verses 1 to 10, the focus is on that brief appearance in Genesis. And according to Hebrews, Melchizedek is significant because he is a different kind of priest. He's different in three ways. First, he's a royal priest. Look again at chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. So we get some basic details here about Melchizedek. Verse 2 gives us the translation of his name. King of righteousness. Melch, king, Zedek, righteousness. Then Salem is almost certainly Jerusalem. At this point in time, that city had no special significance. It would be another 1,000 years or so before David would conquer it and make it Israel's capital city. Salem is connected to the word Shalom, which is probably the one Hebrew word that we all know. It means peace. So Melchizedek is a local king and also a priest. Verse 1 says, King of Salem and priest of God Most High. That makes Melchizedek unique in the Old Testament. In Israel, there was a clear and intentional separation between the kingship and the priesthood. Priests came from the tribe of Levi and from the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. And kings came from the tribe of Judah. Yes, sometimes a king might offer sacrifices. That happens occasionally in the Old Testament. But a king was never a priest and a priest was never a king. Except for Melchizedek. Why is that significant? Well, we'll find out later on. In the meantime, we're shown the second way Melchizedek is a different kind of priest. As he's presented in Genesis, he is without predecessor or successor. Look at verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. I should mention here that some people have read this verse and they've taken it to mean that Melchizedek had a miraculous birth without father or mother. Then they've read the bit about without beginning of days or end of life and they've taken that to mean this is an appearance of the eternal Son of God. Almost like a Christmas before the real Christmas. But with respect to anyone who thinks that, and there are a number of people who would take it that way, I don't believe there's any good reason to understand this text that way. It might be a nice idea, but it is not what the text is telling us. For one thing, it says here, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He's like him, 
is not actually him. So what is the writer of Hebrews telling us here? He's simply pointing out to us what is not included in Genesis. There is no mention in the book of Genesis of Melchizedek's family background. There's no record either of his birth or his death in Genesis. The writer is not claiming Melchizedek didn't have those things. He's drawing our attention to the fact that those details are not recorded for us in Scripture. It is that lack of recorded information which is significant. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood depended on your family background. You became a priest because of who your father and mother were. If you couldn't trace your genealogy back to Aaron, then you could not be a priest. We saw an example of that when Steve preached through the book of Ezra last year. When the Israelites returned from exile, there were certain people who claimed to be from a priestly family. But they had no proof. And that put an end to their claims to the priesthood. We're told in Ezra, they searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood. The message to those people was, it doesn't matter what you say. Show us the proof. We need to see the record of your father and mother and their father and mother, all the way back to Aaron. And if you can't produce that, forget it. Go and be a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker. You can't be a priest. That was the situation in the Old Testament. But Melchizedek was different. Scripture does not supply any line of descent for him. But it does tell us he was priest of God Most High. So verse 3 is not telling us Melchizedek had a miraculous birth. Or that he was Jesus come early. It's telling us Melchizedek was a one-of-a-kind priest. His priesthood did not depend on who his predecessors were. And he didn't hand his priesthood on to his descendants. That's the point of saying he remains a priest forever. He has no successor. His royal priesthood was a one-off in the Old Testament. Scripture does not record that he came from a line of royal priests, nor does it record that a line of royal priests came from him. It's a little bit, if we're trying to understand this, like a sports team retiring a shirt. For example, in American basketball, Michael Jordan wore the number 23 shirt. And when he retired, his team, the Chicago Bulls, said, none of our players will ever wear the number 23 shirt again. From that point on, a Bulls shirt with a number 23 will always be associated with Michael Jordan. He remains number 23 forever. That kind of thing occasionally happens in sport. Here in England, West Ham United retired Bobby Moore's shirt, number six. That gives us a slight insight into what our passage is telling us. Melchizedek was unique 
in being a royal priest. And as far as the Old Testament goes, he remained unique. We could say that when he died, his royal priestly shirt was retired. He's the only one who wore it in the Old Testament. As he's presented in Genesis, Melchizedek is without predecessor or successor. And here's the third way he's different. He is greater than the Levites. The tribe of Levi was, as we've seen, the priestly tribe. But Levi was Abraham's great-grandson. So when Abraham met Melchizedek, Levi didn't yet exist. But Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek still says something significant about the Levites. Verse 4 tells us Abraham paid Melchizedek a tenth of the plunder. That's the plunder taken from the kings who had kidnapped Lot. Why is that significant? Well, for one thing, it's impressive. Given how important Abraham is in the Old Testament story. The man who had received God's promises honored Melchizedek with a tent. But the main significance of this is what it says about the Levitical priesthood. The lives of the Levites revolved around Israel's worship. They worked at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. So the Levites were not given any land in Israel. They wouldn't have had the time to farm it anyway. So how were those people going to be supported? God said they were to receive a tenth from the Israelites. That was the Levites' income. And it gave them a high status in Israel. They administered Israel's religion. But when Levi's great-grandfather Abraham met Melchizedek, Abraham didn't receive a tithe from Melchizedek. He paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews finds that to be very significant. He takes it to mean Melchizedek is greater than the whole priesthood that would eventually come from Abraham. So he says in verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. The Levitical priesthood had an important place in God's plans. But even before it began, it was marked as an inferior priesthood. A royal priest, a priest without predecessor or successor, was superior to the Levites. Well, so much for those things that are distinctive about Melchizedek. Why have we been told all this? We've been told all of it simply because the things that were distinctive about Melchizedek's priesthood Those things help us understand Jesus' priesthood. Verses 11 to 28 tell us Jesus is the greater priest we need. If the background in verses 1 to 10 was Genesis, 
The background in these verses is Psalm 110. We had it read for us earlier. That psalm contains the only other reference to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. It was written about a thousand years after Abraham met Melchizedek. And it was written, as we saw, by David. David, who, at the point when he wrote this psalm, was himself king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. That's the point of connection with David. Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage that's quoted the most in the New Testament. And the reason it's so significant in the New Testament is because the psalm is not about David. Instead, David gives two messages from God in that psalm. They are messages about another greater king. Here's how the psalm begins. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Notice the first line has the word Lord twice. But the first time it's all in capitals. When you see Lord all in capitals in your Bible, that means it's translating the name Yahweh. The personal name of Israel's God. So King David says, Yahweh says to my Lord. Now at this time, there was no one in Israel who was higher than King David. All Israel called David Lord. Capital L, small O-R-D. It was a title of great respect. It acknowledged David's superiority. He was not only king, he was God's chosen king. David is Lord of Israel. But here in Psalm 110, he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David hears Yahweh speaking to a Lord who is higher than David. That means God has appointed a king who is greater than David. A king who will sit at God's right hand until all his enemies are defeated. And we're told, this king will be a priest. That's the second message from God in the psalm. In verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So through David, who was not a priest, God promised another priest king. And God says, to help you understand this future priest king, take a look back at Melchizedek. You'll get the idea. But we have to ask, why was there any need for this? God had provided a priesthood from the Levites, Aaron and his descendants. They carried out the religious requirements of the Old Testament law. They kept hoisting those bulls and lambs onto the altar day after day. Keeping the offerings and the sacrifices going. What else was needed? They were doing the job. Why would God want to send a priest king? We're given the answer to that in verse 11 here in Hebrews 7. If perfection 
could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. The Levitical priesthood was not enough because it could not bring perfection. What does that mean? It means unhindered access to God. Being able to stand in God's presence with no barriers. The Levitical priesthood could not achieve that. Perfection means being totally cleansed. Not just outwardly by ceremonial washing, but inwardly cleansed. Having a clean heart and a clear conscience. The Levitical priesthood could not achieve that. And in the end, perfection means the arrival of God's heaven on earth. It means the completion of his great reclamation project. His creation finally liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In the coming chapters, perfection will be explained in all of those ways. Access Cleansing and a better country, a heavenly one. The point is, none of that could be brought about by the Levitical priesthood. That priesthood had a part to play in God's purposes. In fact, the law that God gave Moses established it. It showed what was required for access and cleansing and liberation. There would have to be sacrifice. None of the Levites could offer a good enough sacrifice. But their work did show what was needed. Their priestly service showed what God himself would eventually provide. So Aaron and his descendants were not a failure. They did what they were meant to do. It's just that they could never do what had to be done. And so another priest had to come. A different kind of priest. And verses 11 to 22 tell us Jesus Christ is the royal priest who brings perfection. Look at verse 13. Speaking here of the priest king that was prophesied in Psalm 110. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe had ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Judah was the tribe of kings, not priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of a power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Someone who is only a priest can serve. 
but they cannot overcome anything. As the priestly king, though, Jesus both serves and overcomes all his enemies, including sin and death and hell. Only a priest king can sit on a throne. And Jesus sits on the throne of heaven. Jesus' priesthood was not based on his human genealogy. Verse 16 says it's based on the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is without predecessor or successor. No priest before him or after him could do what he does. And that includes Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood was a helpful illustration. But he was not a true predecessor to Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus has the power of the eternal God. And that power could not be broken. Not by the cross. Not by the grave. No power of destruction can destroy the power of God. And so, verse 19, with the arrival of Jesus' priesthood, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So Jesus is not just another priest. He doesn't just offer us more of the same. He's unique. He's able to bring about something unique. He's the royal priest who brings perfection. Only Jesus can bring us near to God. Only Jesus can cleanse us totally and give us a bright, eternal future. Once you and I have Jesus, we have found what we're looking for. As this passage goes on, verses 20 to 22 mention God's oath. We focused on that last week. God has not just made promises He has staked his reputation on keeping his promises. Sending a priest like Melchizedek was part of that. Those verses also mention a better covenant. That's going to be explained for us in chapter 8. That's a pattern in Hebrews. Something is introduced without any explanation and it's dealt with later on. Chapter 8 will deal with the better covenant. But here in chapter 7, verses 23 to 28, bring us back to the unique priesthood of Jesus. He's not only the royal priest who brings perfection, he's also the permanent priest who saves completely. Verse 23 is speaking about the Levitical priests. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. 
For the law appoints as high priest man in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. The key words in those verses are permanent and forever. Permanence is not always something we want in our leaders. When it comes to bad leaders, we're glad to see the back of them. Bad leaders make us happy to have a change. But sometimes a boss or a prime minister or a pastor or some other leader comes along who is so good at what they do and so helpful, we just wish they'd stay in their post forever. But it never happens. Even the best leaders retire or move on or pass on. And very often, their good work remains unfinished when they go. Or it gets swept away and undone by the next leader. Or at the very least, the next leader cannot live up to the person they have replaced. That was the case with the Levitical priests. Over the centuries, there were loads of them. High priests all the way from Aaron to the destruction of the temple after Jesus' time on earth in AD 70. And no doubt, some of those priests were good, some of them were bad, and some of them were indifferent. But one thing was true of every single one of them. Their time in office came to an end. But here we're told, in contrast to that, one of the beauties about Jesus is that his priesthood is permanent. There's no danger of his work going unfinished. There's no danger of his work being undone by a successor. There will be no successor. The shirt will never be passed to anyone else. And verse 25 says he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. There are two parts to this complete salvation. Down in verse 27, we're told Jesus' priestly sacrifice is enough to cover our sin. All of it, past, present and future. Jesus' priestly sacrifice was unique. There was no other priest who offered himself as the sacrifice. No other priest could have even if they'd wanted to. They weren't sinless. They couldn't die as a substitute for sinners. Only Jesus could do that, and he did. His sacrifice was perfect. It was enough for you and me to be perfectly forgiven today. If you are trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross, then your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God the Father has intentionally forgotten it. He will never bring it up to you again. Because Jesus has given the answer that you will never have to give. You'll never have to answer for your sin when you're trusting in Jesus. Jesus has given the answer that debt has been paid. But we all know 
that the ups and downs of life don't end the moment we put our trust in Jesus. And so on top of perfect forgiveness, Jesus provides perfect intercession. That's the second part of what it means for Jesus to save completely. Verse 25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. As Christians, we know that we have a finish line in front of us. It's the day when faith finally turns to sight. When momentary troubles give way to an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's the day when death will finally be swallowed up in victory. When Christ appears and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That is the finish line ahead of us. How are you and I going to get there? By our own muscle? Do we have the right kind of steel in us? The right kind of smarts? Do we have what it takes in us to overcome all the barbed wire fences and the landmines that life is going to scatter in front of us? No, we don't. We do not have the gumption or the guts to get ourselves to the finish line. You and I will get there, though, because we have a priest king in heaven who always lives to intercede for us. He never goes off shift. His term in office never comes to an end. What does it mean for Jesus to intercede for you? It means he pleads with his father on your behalf. And his father always gives him what he asks for. The father does not need to be cajoled on your behalf. He doesn't need his arm twisted. Jesus has paid your debt. Justice has already been done. Jesus doesn't have to wheel and deal for you. The deal was done at the cross. And now, the risen Jesus makes sure you receive everything you need. All you need to be sustained in your difficult circumstances. All that you need to come through the trials of each day. All that you need to move another day closer to eternal glory. Jesus was interceding for you while you were asleep last night. He continues to intercede for you right now in this moment. And Jesus' intercession is always successful. Remember, this is a high priest who died so you could be forgiven. Do you think he will lose you on the way to heaven? After the price he paid for you? In Christ Jesus, you and I have a permanent priest who saves us completely. He finishes the job for each one of us. And so whatever other things you and I could put our hope in today, 
Think of all those things. Pile them all up in your mind. As high as you like. Think about all those hopes and it will still be true that Jesus Christ gives us a better hope. He is the priest king who truly meets our need. We're going to respond now to what we've heard of him as we sing together and to one another, Jesus, my only hope.